Hey y'all, you're listening to the Faith Church Sermon Podcast. We are so excited that you're connecting with us today. It is our desire for you to grow as a result of the resources we provide here. We pray that this blesses you today as you seek to know Him more. Well, I celebrated one of those milestone birthdays recently. I know what you're thinking, 24 is not a milestone. Thank you. No, it's one of those numbers that ends in a zero. You know, you kind of cringe at, and you go, how did this happen? Now I have to start acting like an adult. I don't mind actually getting older. I don't like celebrating my birthday. I, I don't like the attention of that. I don't really understand birthday parties. If you're a birthday party person, that's fine. I'm not really sure what the big deal is. I don't know if it was that hard for you to be born that you need a whole day to celebrate you, but... But that's cool. Um, you know, there's something about getting older, especially as you hit milestone birthdays, that you, you kind of ask questions about life. You know, where am I in life? Where am I heading? Sort of just these deeper kind of soul level questions. What is the meaning of life? Am I doing this right? Am I missing out? Is there more? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Just these sort of longings of the heart. What's really incredible to me is that in the Bible, there's a book where this guy is just writing and he's asking questions about life. What's the purpose of life? What's the meaning of all of this that we're doing? And he's trying to understand and ask these real serious life questions. The book that I'm talking about is called Ecclesiastes. It's found in the Old Testament. I'd love for you to go there. If you've got a Bible with you, get it out and turn it on. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes Two, and this book is all about the wisdom of life. It's in this section of the Bible that we call the wisdom literature, which is where we're spending our summer together. And we're looking at this books that talk about just life advice, the purpose of life, the meaning of things. And I think for all of us, we want to have some level of wisdom in life. We want to understand our purpose. None of us want to get to the end of this thing and go, well, Boy, I wasted all of that, right? So this book, Ecclesiastes, is about trying to understand the purpose of life. It's written by this guy named Solomon, and he's writing 3,000 years ago, asking the same questions that you and I are asking today. And life's great question that we're going to explore together today is this. Solomon asks, what will make a person happy? What in this life will bring meaning and ultimate satisfaction to a person? And it's just so cool to me that on the other side of the world, 3,000 years ago, that this guy is thinking about, asking questions, and writing about the very things that you and I are thinking about, these deep sort of longing questions. Before we get into that, let me give you a little bit of the backstory of Solomon, who he is and why I think that we should listen to him. The Bible calls Solomon the wisest man to ever live. He's the king of Israel. He lives there in Jerusalem, and he is the son of King David, the great King David. But anything that King David did, Solomon can do better. He's more powerful. He's wealthier. He's smarter. This guy conquers lands. This guy builds all kinds of palaces and things. He leads armies. But there's something deeper about Solomon, just about his character. He wants to know more. He really wants to understand life. Is this life just all about enjoyment? Is it about success? Is it about power? Is it about money? Is it about leaving a legacy? And so in his attempt to understand life, he writes this book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, as you read it, 
it's pretty raw. It's pretty honest. So it has moments in this book that are beautiful, and there are moments in this book that are painful. In fact, Solomon opens Ecclesiastes with these words. He says in chapter one, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So we're not off to a good start. There's not a lot of hope there early on, but he goes on this journey to make sense of life. Let me show you specifically his exploration to find happiness. And I think this is going to resonate with you pretty good. So Ecclesiastes chapter two, here's what it says. Solomon writes, I said to myself, come now, let us test or I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. So just first of all, again, wisest man to ever live. Um, I love that he's talking to himself. That gives me some semblance of hope when I talk to myself. This guy knows what's up and he's doing it. Look what he says. I want to find out what's good. He says, I want to look and determine what in life is going to make a person happy. And he says, I'm going to test all of these various theories. And I love this. I have tons of respect for this guy. He's willing to break out of his comfort zone. He's willing to try new things. He's kind of willing to go on an adventure. I love that. But look what he says next. He says, but all, all prove to be meaningless. He goes, I tried everything in an attempt to find happiness and joy, and it all proved to be meaningless. So again, same stuff. Not a lot of hope here. Sounds pretty fatalistic. Sounds kind of depressing, right? But I want to go through a little bit further. I want to keep going because he's going to talk about all the things that he did, all the ways that he pushed on life to test what would make him happy. So look at this, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 2. He says, laughter. I tried laughter, he said, but that's madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? So he goes, I laughed a lot and I had lots of fun and I just tried to sort of shut out, just try to sort of ignore life's pain. There's this ancient philosophy. It came about after Solomon's time, but he's kind of experimenting with it. It's called Epicureanism. And it's this idea that if you just ignore the hard stuff in life, just sort of stay away from pain and suffering, just avoid, ignore hard, difficult things at all costs that everything's going to be okay. You probably know people, actually, that try and live this way. Even subconsciously, people try and do this. They try and just, like, I'm going to stay away from pain. I'm not going to try anything hard. I'm never going to get out of my comfort zone. If I just stay in this sort of little bubble, then I'll be happy, and I'll just ignore life's pain. And when stuff that's difficult comes up, I won't really settle, and I'll just keep moving and pretend like it's not really happening. Solomon goes, yeah, I tried that. He said, that didn't make me happy. So verse three, he keeps going. He said, I tried cheering myself up with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. He means he didn't get drunk. He's not like I just went out and got wasted all the time and, and, and lived it up. No, he goes, I just had a couple glasses of wine, tried to relax. He says, I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. And so you think about wine, he's probably talking about having parties. He's talking about being with friends and socializing and sitting around and having a couple glasses. He goes, yeah, that didn't really make me happy either. So now he swings for the fences. He, he goes big. Listen to the next couple of verses. Verse four, he says, I undertook great projects. I laughed. I tried wine. Now I undertook these great projects. I built houses for myself. And I planted vineyards. I made gardens 
and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I even made reservoirs to water the groves of flourishing trees. And so you just kind of listen to the language. You go, man, he's building something really beautiful. And Solomon did that. He built a lot of really great things. He built a palace that was amazing. He built other houses as well. He built a temple for God. And so he says, now I'm building vineyards and, and gardens. I'm planting all kinds of trees. And I think he's building something really beautiful, but I actually think there's something a little bit deeper going on here. If you look at the language that he uses, gardens, parks, trees, watering systems to water the trees, just, just my opinion, I think Solomon is trying to recreate the Garden of Eden. In fact, this word right here, parks, is the word paradise. He's trying to make perfection. I think in his attempt to find happiness, Solomon thinks if I can recreate the Garden of Eden, that's where I'll find it. Remember the Garden of Eden, right? Page one of the Bible is this place that God makes. It's perfect. It's beautiful and lovely. There are parks. It's a garden. There's watering systems for all of the trees. It's where God dwells with his people. And remember Solomon, when he builds God's temple in Jerusalem, he uses all this Eden-like imagery. He uses gold everywhere. He uses these carvings of, of plants and trees and animals trying to make it look like Eden. I think he's doing the same thing here. Building parks, he's building gardens because deep down in his soul, like all of us, he longs for this Eden place. He longs for this place that is perfect, where he's with God, where there's no brokenness, where there's no sin, where there's no sadness. And Solomon thinks if I could just take all my money and all my, my wealth and power and I could use it in some way to recreate the Garden of Eden, that will bring me happiness. And so he does that. He builds parks and gardens. Keep going. Verse 7. He says, I bought male and female servants. I had other servants in my house. He's just talking about building power here. Think about if you have servants to wait on you hand and foot all day long to do everything for you. He has all kinds of power. He says, I also own more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. He says, I amassed silver and gold for myself. In verse 8, and the treasure of kings and provinces, he's got lots of money. He says, I acquired male and female singers. He's become sort of Lord of the Arts and Entertainment. He's got anyone to come and entertain him that he wants. He says, oh yeah, by the way, I have all the sex that I want. I have a harem. The delights of a man's heart, he says. Verse 9, he says, I became greater than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And so you just think about the level of fame that he has. I was greater than anyone before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. He tested everything to find out what would make him happy. Power, money, sex, entertainment, convenience, comfort, safety. He's trying to answer the most fundamental, deep, longing questions of the soul. He goes so far as to try and recreate the Garden of Eden. Keep going, verse 10. He says, I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired, refused myself, my heart no pleasure. The richest, most powerful man in the world says, anything that I saw and wanted, I had. Anything that my heart desired, I claimed that for myself. 
I mean, go ahead and use your imagination. Eh, probably shouldn't, actually. He left no stone unturned, trying to find happiness. Everything that the world had to offer was his. He says, my heart took delight in all my labor, and that was the reward for my toil, meaning that the work was fun, right? He says, building the houses, building the vineyards, that was cool. It was all right. I liked being out there designing the architecture. I like watching things grow. I like the way our watering systems fed towards everything to, to, to make everything flourish. Like, that was kind of cool. These are God-given things to work and create. I like spending time with people. That was fun. So he acknowledges that these things made him happy at some level. But look at verse 11. He says, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. He says, I chased after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Laughter, wine, friends, gardens, parks, lakes, servants, entertainment, a harem. Where does he end up? Same place that he started. He writes the words, everything was meaningless. The Hebrew word there, is this word, habel, and it's really kind of a hard word to understand, but it means something like a vapor or like a mist, something that, that you imagine is sort of transitory. It's here in a moment. You can kind of see it, but then pff, it's gone. I think just the way we would easily understand it, he's saying that all these things were empty, all that stuff. And Solomon, again, he acknowledges it was fun in the moment, building vineyards, having parties, all the wealth that you could imagine. He's like, it was fun. All the sex that he could dream of, it was fun. All the wine. He's like, all of that was fun. Building another house, building the palace, it was fun. But what he found is that in the end, it was empty. It couldn't fill his soul. All that his heart longs for, it simply couldn't be found here. He tries everything. Relationships and things and money and experiences, comfort. It's actually kind of sad. This guy who is on top of the world has everything. This guy has more wealth and power than anyone in modern day could even imagine. The richest people on the planet today have nothing compared to what Solomon had. And nothing that he finds brings lasting pleasure and happiness. And what I think is so interesting about this, see what you think about this. It's been 3,000 years since Solomon wrote this. And you imagine everything that's happened in the last 3,000 years, all the advancements we've had of, of medicine and technology and science and all these kinds of things, and all the learning that we've done, and just the creature comforts of, of modern society, all the ways that we can travel across the globe and we can talk to people on the other side of the world and just all the safety that we have. Everything that's changed over 3,000 years. And yet, aren't we still looking for happiness in the same place, same places that Solomon looked? Aren't we still looking for the answers to life's questions in, you know, money and power? Solomon had more than we could even dream of. He goes, there's no happiness there. And yet we think we will. Just let, try us. Let us see. We'll find happiness there. 
We think if I'm just totally safe and comfortable and, and, and I never have to be pushed and tried, then I'll be happy. Solomon goes, I, I tried that. It doesn't work. In all the places that he looked, we look. Power and sex and safety, substance in another human being. Isn't it ironic? 3,000 years later, we're still looking in the same places. And we're convinced if I just had more money, if I just had more influence, if I just had a different job, if I just had more wine, if I just had more sex, and maybe things that appear at least more wholesome. If my family just got along, I'd be happy. If I wasn't alone, I'd be happy. If there wasn't so much division in my community, I'd be happy. If there was more unity in our country and politics, then I'd be happy. But I would argue that in our search for happiness, we look in all the same places that Solomon looked. In the same places that he didn't find happiness, money, power, comfort, safety. And here's this guy Solomon, and he's like, I tried it all. There's nothing that I could think of that I didn't go, well, yeah, let's give that a shot. And he goes, it doesn't work. It's empty. And if you know Solomon's story, as he continues to go through life, he's this guy who has this godly wisdom, but by the end of his life, he's way off track. He has more than a thousand wives and concubines. They lead him astray from God because Solomon was convinced if I just had a little bit more, I'd be happy. If I just had one more wife, if I just conquered one more country, if I just had a little bit more power, if I just had a little bit more influence, if I just had a little bit more sex, it's sad. And yet there is something that is so honest about it, and there is something that resonates with me so much in this. If I just have a little more fill in the blank, I'll be happy. If I just had, if I just could get a raise, if I could just go on that vacation, if I could just get to retirement, if I could just be friends with that person, if my kids could just on and on and on and on. We have in our head, if I just one more. And yet there's something about this. You've experienced this. I've experienced this. It's like what Solomon is saying. I've gotten the raise. I've gone on the vacation. They're okay. They're fun in the moment. But then what happens? They're empty. They're like a mist. They're here and then gone. I mean, it's so real. There's something about like, I actually don't need Solomon to tell me this. I, I know it because I've experienced it myself. And so have you. I mean, doesn't this resonate? This, this frustration that Solomon is experiencing in his search for happiness? The book of Ecclesiastes is so, it's just so brutally honest. And at moments it's, you know, it's, it's a little sad. Like you could read it, you could keep going through it and, and over and over it's like there's nothing new, life stinks and then we all die. Like that's the story of Ecclesiastes. But I think there's a truth here. I think there's a truth that, that all of us have experienced, that the way we search for happiness often comes up like a vapor. Just, we think we have something and then poof, it's gone. In the moment, it's fine, but ultimately empty. So the question is, does Solomon ever find 
a solution of how to be happy. Yes, he does, um, but you have to go read it for yourself. It's found in chapter 12. Find time this week, go read chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, and you'll understand a little bit more. But what I want to do is I actually want to jump ahead to the New Testament, because I think Jesus sort of picks up on some of this thinking. So if you got your Bible with you, go forward to Matthew 16. I think there's a way that Jesus, when he's on earth, because he is a human being, he knows the questions that we have. He knows the stuff that is deep inside of our heart that we just ask questions about life. And he knows that we want meaning and we want purpose and we want to understand things. And I love that he's not afraid just to walk right into these conversations. And so that's what he does over and over again. And here in chapter 16, I think he picks up on this question about happiness and meaning. Listen to what he says. Jesus speaking in verse 25. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Let me, let me read that again. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good, he says, remember, that's what Solomon was asking about good, about happiness. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Here's what we do in our pursuit of happiness. We try and gain the whole world. That's what Solomon did, right? He's trying to gain everything the world has to offer because he believed that he could find something in this world that would bring meaning to his life and purpose to his life that would give him this ultimate sense of happiness. And so he went around the world and he tried everything that the world has to offer. And I'm quite certain we do the same. If I could just gain a little more of the world, Here's all the things the world has to offer. If I could just gain a little more of them, then whew, I could take a deep breath. Then I would, be, I would be happy. But look at what Jesus says. He says the actual goal of all of this isn't to gain. He says the actual goal is loss. Whoever loses their life, he says, will find it. If you want happiness and meaning in your life, he says lose everything. Now, that sounds really bad, right? You hear people who have said, we lost everything. Have you ever heard someone say that and mean that in a good way? No. We fear that. We fear losing everything. In uh, 2008, my wife and I moved from Oregon to Arizona, and it was right when the economy shifted and the real estate bubble burst, right? And that hit Phoenix really hard. That was one of the hardest hit places in the country, which for us, moving there was really great because we got what felt like a mansion for $72.50. It was awesome. But that was not the experience of most people. In fact, uh, I remember talking to my neighbor one day, and he said that when he bought his house, he paid $480,000 for his house. And at the time, there was a house just like his for sale down the road for $165,000, quite a quite a gap. And a lot of people experienced this. And so what happened is people couldn't afford their homes anymore. And so they were, unfortunately, they were losing their homes. And you would hear it over and over and over again. People would say, we lost everything. And as human beings, that's one of our greatest fears, that we would lose everything. And here's Jesus, and he goes, if you want to have life, it's not about gaining the whole world. It's not about gaining everything the world has to offer. If you want to have happiness, Jesus says, lose everything. And it's not that he wants us to needlessly suffer. Don't hear it that way. But he's picking up on some of this stuff that Solomon was talking about, that the ultimate happiness, the ultimate expression of meaning and purpose 
is found not in this world, but in losing this life so that then you can find real life in Jesus. And so what he says, he sort of paints this dichotomy. He goes, you can, you can choose this life. You can look for happiness here, now. You can gain the whole world. You could find happiness in your job, in your wealth, in your family, in your sex life, in your comfort, in, in, in all kinds of things. He's like, that's an option. But Jesus says, here's what it will cost you. It'll cost you your soul. But he says there's another way, and it's not just because Jesus wants to take away all our fun. He has something better. He goes, there's this other way. It's not vapor. It's not empty. You can lose everything. You can find happiness by losing it all for my sake, Jesus says. It's so upside down. But he says if you gain the whole world, you're going to always be left wanting more. This world does not have what your soul thirsts for. It can't satisfy you. And so he says, lose everything and follow me. It's backwards. So how do we do it? How do we lose everything? Because again, I think all of us, we want meaning and we want happiness in our life. And not that simple sort of trite happiness, sort of uh, short-lived happiness. We want soulful peace. We want like deep resonating satisfaction. So how do we get there. Just a few things if you're a note taker to write down. And, and, and let me just say, maybe you're going, you know, I don't find happiness in money or sex. Those are sort of carnal things. And I'm more mature than that. Okay, cool. Um, how about your family? How about your relationship? How about your 401k? How about your comfort and your convenience? I mean, there's so many ways that we get intertwined in where we look for happiness and purpose that we don't even realize it. So what does it mean to lose everything? Here we go. Number one, to lose everything means to treasure Jesus, to treasure Jesus above everything else. If you love your mother or father more than me, Jesus says, you're not worthy to follow me. If you love your son or your daughter more than me, don't follow me. You're not worthy. See, it's not about just putting Jesus on the same level as everything else. It's about putting and treasuring Jesus above everything. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's found in a field. And when you find it, you sell everything so that you can have that one treasure. Do you treasure Jesus above everything else? Really? Is obedience to Jesus more important than your desires? Is following him more important than, than your comfort? And you go, well, what does treasuring Jesus look like? Oh, yeah, we'd like a list. We'd just love a to-do checklist. Read your Bible more, go to church more, serve more, give more, pray more, all those things. We'd love to just go through the ritual of religion. I don't think that's it. I mean, do we do those things? Yes. But treasuring Jesus is it's holding him as, as precious, as the most important thing. It's inviting him into every part of your life. It means putting your focus on him and talking to him and holding him close to your heart. And what so many of us want is we want just sort of life, this good life with a side of Jesus, where the main course is happiness and health and a, a good family and a nice home and a summer vacation and a, you know, a robust 401k and safety and comfort and convenience. And of course, we want a little side of Jesus because that adds flavor to life. And Jesus is like, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. You lose 
everything and you follow me and you treasure me above everything else. And that stuff will fall into place. Yeah, that's all good stuff that Jesus wants for us. But to treasure him, to hold him above everything, to lose yourself completely and find your hope in him, to hold him close like something you value. The second thing it means to lose, your, uh, to lose everything is to surrender it all. Surrendering everything to God for his purpose. See, if you go back and read Solomon, you can pick it up in some translations. He uses the word myself over and over again. I built for myself gardens. I built for myself vineyards. I built for myself houses. I denied myself nothing. When Jesus calls us to lose everything, he's saying, take your hands off of your stuff. You hold on so tight to your money and you hold on so tight to your family and you hold on so tight to your convenience and to your reputation and to your politics because you think if I can just hold on to this stuff, if I can just make these things right, then I'll be happy. Jesus goes, no, 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 let go. Some of you hold on to your money so tight because you think if I have this, everything will be okay. I'll be happy. You hold on to your kids so tight because you're afraid of losing them because you forgot that God loves them more than you do. And so you hold on to them as tight as you can. Some of you hold on to your politics because if you don't jump up and down and scream about everything, then it's all going to fall apart and you hold on to these things. And Jesus goes, you have a stranglehold on them, but the truth is they have a stranglehold on you. So let go. Jesus says, surrender everything to me. He's inviting you to lose everything, not recklessly, but to trust him. To lose that grasp that you have on what you think your future has to look like. To lose that grasp that you have on your possessions to lose that grasp that you have trying to make everything right in your family and trying to make everything perfect. Maybe there's something you need to let go of because what you're doing when you hold on to it, when you strangle it, you're putting yourself in the place of Jesus Christ. You're thinking, I've got control over all this. And Jesus says, let go, lose everything, trust me. He's inviting you to come to him. The third thing it means to lose everything is to live singularly focused, to live for the day that Christ returns. Oh, I know we don't talk about this in church anymore because there's so many quacks out there who have made all these predictions and just want to scare everybody. But you do remember that Jesus is coming back, right? And do you remember that that's our hope? I mean, read the New Testament. It's all these guys talk about. Our hope is that Jesus is coming back. Over and over again, his best friends are talking about Jesus is coming back and they're saying, run for that day. And my worry for us is that we have so fallen in love with this day, with this life, that the thought of Jesus coming back doesn't even get us excited anymore. In fact, there's a way that Jesus' return is an inconvenience to us. Jesus, could you just hold off for a little while? I got a good thing going on. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he finishes his letter and he says, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Peter, one of Jesus' best friends, says, we wait eagerly 
for the day that the Lord returns. That's what it means to lose everything. It, means, it doesn't mean we don't engage in, in life and in the real world, but with our eyes on that day, that Jesus is coming back. And if we're not living for that day, I wonder if we've fallen for this day and this world. And we've believed the lie that if we just gain more of this world, like Solomon wants to do, gain more, gain more, gain more, gain more. That's my purpose. That's what will make me happy. That there is happiness here. I just haven't found it yet. Jesus says you can gain it all, but you'll lose your soul. So if we go back to where we started and we try and answer the question that Solomon asked, what will make a person happy? I mean, it might seem churchy, it might seem Jesus, but it's, or as silly, but it seems to me pretty simple that it's Jesus. And you go, that's predictable. Yeah, fine. While everything else is meaningless, while everything else is just a vapor, Jesus Christ is the only who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so today, if you find yourself looking for happiness and you're looking for it in all these other places, I guess my encouragement to you is just come back to Jesus because in his hands, there's life and he wants to give it to you. And he wants to give you deep, soulful peace and rest and lasting joy and happiness. And he gives us the choice, all you want in this life or everything that you could imagine for all time. Would you pray with me? God, thanks for your word. Thanks that it's honest. Thanks that there are people who have gone before us like Solomon who have struggled like we do just to navigate life and to want to find purpose and meaning and happiness. God, we know in our heads all that Solomon said, that what this world has to offer is ultimately empty. God, we see all the time people with basically unlimited resources, and we see how unhappy they are, and it should be evidence to us. And we know it in our head, but it's hard to believe it in our hearts So we chase this world, God. We chase it if we could gain a little bit more. God, please help us to find everything in you, meaning, purpose. Please help us to find our happiness, our soulful rest only in Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God, we confess where we've chased other things, where we've tried to gain the whole world, where we've believed the lie that more companionship or more money or more comfort would make us happy. God, help us to see that it's only you. And help us right now in this moment to know understand what it means when Jesus says, lose everything and you'll find life in me. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who knows what it means to lose everything, but he did it for us that we would have life. We love you, God, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.